song we just heard is called Many Voices. This beautiful piece was written by a patient near the end of life together with her music therapist, Priya Shah, who we'll introduce further and hear from in just a bit. It was written as a call and response song, a call to her family and loved ones for support, and a response in return from them. In the clip, the song was performed around her bedside one afternoon at a hospice by her healthcare team and loved ones. Priya expressed how powerful this moment was to witness her patient's words and phrases come to life. This legacy creation in the form of music is but one aspect of music therapy, the theme of today's episode. We'll continue to unpack and explore many other approaches and forms of music therapy throughout the episode. We have more surprises in store for you right until the very end, so keep your ears out, literally, until then. We spoke with five music therapists, each sharing their unique perspectives working in different patient populations and healthcare settings, to hopefully paint a fuller picture of the diverse, creative value of music therapy. This is Erin. Steph and Jillian. And welcome to episode 75 of Raw Talk. Here's Dr. Michael Tao, professor in the Department of Music at the University of Toronto with cross appointments in rehabilitation science and neuroscience. He is the director of the Music and Health Science Research Collaboratory and the Music and Health Sciences Graduate Programs. He is also the Canada Research Chair in Music and Health Sciences. Michael tells us how this field came to be. Music therapy is a, really a, an umbrella term for a lot of different schools of thought, philosophies, approaches that can range from more psychodynamic to more behavioral-oriented um, it's been around in the U.S., organized since 1950. Canada, I'm not sure, but it's a relatively new profession in the world, uh, although the idea of music as a therapy has been ancient. I mean, the idea that music has some kind of medical or therapeutic value has been probably around for thousands of years, if you look at sort of the artifacts. Uh, it was obviously not very scientific, and um, still some of our... Some of the popular concepts about music and health and therapy are still not very scientific, mm-hmm. <laughs> although they've become more and more popular. But um, the uh, first country, to my knowledge, that actually organized a profession of music therapy it was the U.S. in 1950. It came out of the um, Music Educators Organization. They had a music psychology section, and the music psychology section it created the uh, society, National Society for Music Therapy. And it actually started practicing during World War II when uh, musicians were invited to go into hospitals oh. and play for the patients. And so some of the results they saw were obviously beyond the entertainment idea. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of is there a therapeutic core that started sort of in the, uh, in the VA system in the United States in the 40s, triggered really by what can we do for our wounded yeah, soldiers. Who've experienced a lot of trauma, right? Exactly. Right. And bringing it back to when it started, you mentioned that we know kind of when it started based on a few artifacts. What might some of those artifacts look like? Well, we have actually, we have writings in the Baroque in the 17th century where people write in great detail 
the vibrations of music can sort of shake loose the poisonous humors in the body. I mean, <laughs> some very interesting kind of <laughs> ideas. We have documentation of Egypt, you know, the writings. Somebody sits there with a harp and is supposed to be sort of a priest musician. David plays the harp for Saul in the Bible mm-hmm. to lift his depression. So it's it's um, it's really it's sort of scattered all over the place. But yeah. uh, and uh, that the idea that music has is more than an art form is that's been around for a long time. Actually, music was considered a science for two thousand years before it became in our modern world mostly an art form. Music and its therapeutic value have been around for a long time, but what does it look like today? We spoke with music therapists working in various fields of healthcare one of which was Dr. Sarah Rose Black. Sarah Rose, who just defended her PhD a few weeks ago, began working at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center during her internship in 2012. She continues to work as the only music therapist in the hospital now. She has since grown the program into an incredible trifold clinical research and education program. She also works at Kensington Hospice, a 10-bed residential hospice close by. She tells us about her experience working in supportive cancer care. As a creative arts therapist, I find I am invited into patients' experiences of health and of disease and of coping through the medium of the arts. So that in and of itself is unique. When people see me in the elevator with a keyboard or a violin or a guitar, it's often striking because it's not what you would typically expect in a healthcare facility. However, I'm a firm believer that human beings are inherently musical by virtue of the fact that our bodies are quite rhythmic. We have a drum, our heart inside us, and we move through the world in a rhythmic, melodic way. So there is definitely a unique aspect of being a music therapist in that I am bringing live music to the bedside and doing various things with it through psychotherapy. However, once people start to connect their emotions to music, they find it's a very natural extension of processing what it means to be dealing with an illness or to be coping with cancer in general. A typical music therapy session generally involves some component of live music as well as some component of talk therapy. It depends on where the patient's at and what their symptom levels are like. I've been in patient rooms where they are so fatigued they don't want to talk. They're sort of talked out. So I may come in and I may play live music for 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes as few as 5 minutes, sometimes as many as 60 minutes. I will be at the bedside with my keyboard and I will do something called breath entrainment where I will match the person's breathing patterns. They may be lying in bed or in a chair and I will play music that matches the speed at which they are breathing. And what happens in that process is subconsciously, the patient's breathing will match up with the speed of the music I'm playing. And effectively, if I slow the music down, their breathing will slow down, calming their nervous system, relaxing their body. I draw on familiar music if patients have very specific songs or artists or genres that they love, but I also do a lot of improvisation. I may use my voice, I may use only the piano, I may use a different instrument completely. So that could be a typical kind of receptive music therapy session. A more active session might involve something like songwriting, where I go in and do a fair bit of verbal psychotherapy, where I'm exploring patients' thoughts, feelings, emotions, and I invite them to put those into words, and then we put the words to music. That can happen in a period of 20 minutes, that can happen over a period of a month if a patient wants to spend more time. 
but often patients don't necessarily have a lot of time, depending on how long they are hospitalized or if they are physically declining and find it exhausting to engage verbally. So I always take my lead from the patients and go with what their needs are, as well as what the clinical focus is from the team. Sarah Rose works in cancer and end-of-life care, but there are many different forms and approaches in music therapy, which we will continue to explore. We heard the beautiful singing voice of music therapist Priya Shaw in the opening of this episode. After completing a Bachelor of Music with a minor in psychology and women's studies at Carleton University, she went on to complete her Master's in Music Therapy at Wilfrid Laurier University in 2018 with an internship at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Toronto. She works in diverse settings throughout the week, including a music therapy centre, a long-term care home, and a hospice for the vulnerably housed and homeless called Journey Home Hospice, which you might remember from episode 69, Forgotten Voices Exploring Homelessness and Health. In addition to seeing clients in private practice, Priya also leads groups at Sheena's Place to support people with eating disorders, Gilda's Club to support people living with or impacted by cancer, and Covenant House, a youth shelter. We asked her to walk us through a group music therapy session. She began by describing the instruments she brings, including a keyboard, guitars, small percussion instruments such as shakers or a tambourine, hand drums, a bass, occasionally the accordion, and a singing bowl. When the group starts, I like to start with playing the singing bowl to bring everyone into the space and to kind of bring them into inner awareness. So I like to kind of say, take a moment to turn inwards and do a a scan, so a body scan, and notice if there's any tension anywhere. And then if there's tension somewhere, maybe breathe into that tension as the singing bowl continues to play. Sometimes I vocalize with the singing bowl, sometimes not. After that, I usually do a round of a check-in, so each person can kind of share how they're doing today or how they've been doing this feeling this week, and just be able to share that with the group, and it's received by the group members supportively. Or it could be a musical check-in, so taking an instrument and playing something and then talking about what that feel, what that represents, what feeling it might represent. And then I like to go into a musical experience, such as sound layering so that would be where each person creates a little sound bite on their instrument it could be really simple just hitting the drum doing a steady beat on the drum for example and something that's simple enough they can continue to repeat and then after they start that each person will consecutively add their sound bite so that by the end everybody's playing then it becomes this really interesting sound of all these instruments and the patterns that they're doing and I sometimes tell people like if you start something and after a few moments you don't like it anymore feel free to change it it ends organically by when you're done you just drop out and eventually one person's left playing and then it ends and then we talk about you know what that might have felt like were you listening to others were you pretty absorbed in what you were playing did you make any changes yes no maybe why So that's one kind of example of a structured improvisation. And then we might go into more um, referential or more open improvisations where, for example, we come up with a theme. So the theme could be an emotion. The theme could be anything that the group is feeling right now is important to explore through music. So if it was an emotion, for example, we might start with an overall feeling that people are having of feeling tired or sad or frustrated anything and then we maybe explore that emotion through music and add in the option to shift to another emotion 
And so we'll experience that in the music, discuss it, what came on. And then sometimes if there's a theme for the day, I like to use that as a prompt to do some creative writing. And then we might turn that creative writing into a song afterwards. So let's say the prompt was, today we're exploring the inner child. And the creative writing project might be, what's something you want to say to your inner child? And then there's opportunity for each person to share if they want. And then we'll brainstorm taking some of those words putting them on a paper and then turning it into a song somehow. So the song doesn't have to be, you know, a traditional like verse, chorus, verse. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it could be just an instrument playing in the background. So maybe I'm playing the keyboard or the piano or something and each person's going around and saying like a line that really resonates with them. So singing or speaking that line. And so it turns into more maybe of a spoken word piece. So it really depends. But sometimes it is like a full sung verse, chorus, verse, and everybody's in the room is singing and it's playing percussion while they're doing that. So that's one example. Other times I incorporate art as well with art as a prompt for improvisation or as a prompt to do some storytelling about people's experiences related to the theme that we're exploring. So it really varies. I often like to close with singing because I find that as the singing bowl grounds us and brings us into the space, sometimes singing also has the same function to bring everybody together again before we all disperse and to have us feeling like unified, especially if what was brought up in the group was challenging. It's a good way to kind of bring everyone back together again. And then we do a checkout where we sing sometimes the chorus of Let It Be. And then each person has a chance to kind of share something for their closing checkout as the music's playing in the background. So it kind of provides like an accompaniment for their checkout. Priya has learned a lot about music therapy in practice, and she says she continues to learn each and every day in every client and patient encounter. We asked her about her key takeaways when describing the important elements of music therapy. There are three elements to music therapy. The therapeutic relationship, so the relationship between client and therapist, music, and clinical goals. And I think the latter is super important because in every relationship I have, whether it's with an individual client or with a group, I always have goals and I'm reassessing constantly after each session how these goals are being met. And so, for example, let's say I'm looking at one of the groups that I run. Um, one of the goals is for emotional expression. So I'm looking at how is music able to help clients identify and express their emotions. Another one could be building self-awareness and gaining insights. So how could the music we make compare to or relate to their experiences outside of music therapy? And can connections be made between what we're learning through the process of making music and discussing a discussion afterwards? Can links be made that, you know, relate to how they're doing in recovery or how they are on their journey in music, oftentimes there's um, there can be chaos, especially in improvised music, but there can also be moments of harmony and unity and cohesion. And so how does that relate to outside? Well, life itself is nonlinear and there's ups and downs constantly. So music or improvisation especially allows for challenging emotions to arise, but also to stay with those emotions because that's sometimes the hardest part is to stay with those challenging emotions and to ride through those waves as they come up. And so being in that together in a supportive environment can really allow people to develop the tools to cope with those emotions as they come up and to relate it to what's happening for them outside of the room. 
Music therapy often lies at the intersection of many different fields in healthcare. And so music therapists often work alongside interdisciplinary team members in caring for their patients. I'm very fortunate to work as a member of an interdisciplinary team, and I'm actually part of several teams. So part of the Department of Supportive Care, which encompasses fields like psychiatry, psychology, and social work, but I also work closely with nursing, with physicians, allied health, such as physiotherapists and occupational therapists, as well as spiritual care. And within all of these different teams that I am a part of, I get formal referrals from any number of clinicians. So a nurse might refer a patient to me because the patient is having trouble sleeping or trouble managing their pain or is very, very anxious. A physician might refer their patient to me because they are looking for alternative or complementary methods of symptom control, for example, nausea. Music can act as a distraction from symptoms, but also a way to integrate uh, what they are feeling into a form of self-expression and can be a really unique opportunity to say what they're feeling and thinking in a different way. I may have a referral from a spiritual care professional who notices that the patient is really interested in music and finds music very comforting, particularly with dealing with themes of existential distress, fear, loneliness. Music can often be a great comfort. And sometimes I will have patients self-refer or family members see me in the hall and say, can you come see my loved one? They would really find great comfort in music at this time. For some therapists, working in multidisciplinary setting actually led them to pursue music therapy. Our next guest, Dr. Corrine Hurt-Tout, is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Music and research associate at the Music and Health Research Collaboratory at the University of Toronto. I actually asked my first boss, and she was an occupational therapist, so she also had this very functional mindset. Mm -hmm. And I said, could I just try to use music differently in this population and see what happens? And so she gave me like a month to kind of show what my ideas were and really change the program that I was running. And she was so excited about the things that she saw that instead of going in and doing sing-alongs with the patients, I was actually going in and having them playing instruments and working on you know, rehabilitation of arm function after a stroke or working on attention after a traumatic brain injury. And mm -hmm. so it was actually very relatable for her because as an occupational therapist, that's how she imagined also that music could be used. It wasn't until I did my master's degree and met Michael Tout that we started looking further at how can music really be used in a consistent way, like what is actually happening when the brain engages in music. And obviously advances in neuroscience and technology have allowed us to learn and understand a lot more about the brain and answer that question. Corrine started out as a musician-turned-music therapist and was inspired to explore how music could impact functional rehabilitation rather than the psychosocial focus that had been the emphasis of music therapy. She ended up developing a career in neurologic music therapy. Corrine works with Michael, who gave us a brief history lesson on music therapy earlier. They are both internationally recognized in the field of neurologic music therapy, or NMT for short, which is an evidence-based system of clinical strategies for speech and language, cognitive, and sensory motor training, with 20 developed clinical techniques. Well, music therapy started in the States, and then based on music neuroscience research, the clinical part of that research in the, most in the 90s, 
we got to the point where um, medical personnel, neurologists, other therapists, looked at the data, and they were very impressed with the data and the videos and everything that demonstrated such a huge effect on just walking, for instance, in stroke patients or Parkinson's patients. The walking pattern changes 100%. And so the question was, who can do that? Because the traditional music therapist does not do that. They work from a different, more sort of a social science model. And uh, so we actually had to get to the point where there was a academy of neurologic music therapy formed and whose purpose is to do continued education all over the world. Wow. So that's been going on for 20 years. Currently about 3,000, maybe three, more, 4,000 certified neurologic music therapists or people from other professions that hold an NMT certificate mm-hmm. in about 30, a little over 30 countries in the world. Wow, so it's grown quite a bit. It's grown quite a bit, and it continues to grow. The academy teaches about seven to eight courses all over the world, mm-hmm. two here in Toronto. So there's a huge demand for this kind of work because it works. Mm-hmm. And it is um, the evidence was first there, the research was there first, and then based on the research data, the uh, treatment interventions were developed. Corrine is the program director at the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy that Michael mentioned. She and her students worked with many different populations, as NMT is a functional therapy relevant to a broad spectrum of contexts. She explains why. So neurologic music therapy is really not population-based, but it's function-based. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a brain and you have attention or executive function or motor skills, then those can be impaired in anyone, not just somebody who had a stroke. And so the word neurologic music therapy does not really refer to neurologic conditions. conditions. It refers to if you have a brain. The brain. <laughs> and <laughs> understanding, <relevant. laughs> yeah, understanding how when the brain engages in music, it's changed. Yeah. And how can we use that knowledge to actually change brains depending on what the need area is. We asked Corrine to walk us through one of the 20 clinical techniques of NMT, melodic intonation therapy. This technique is used in speech and language training specifically. Melodic intonation therapy is actually a technique developed by neuroscientists in the 70s. -hmm. And it was looking at this idea of how we could create a structure, or they could create a structured process to use music to help people with aphasia. So Mm -hmm. helping somebody who had expressive aphasia who could no longer speak and tapping into that ability that they often have to still sing and utilizing that to teach them not to just sing familiar songs, but to actually sing functional phrases Mm -hmm. that they may need to be able to say. In their everyday lives. In their everyday lives. It's one of 20 techniques. But MIT was originally developed by speech therapy. And so it was often used by them in clinical practice. However, over the years, it has really changed in how we use it just based on you know, how long people are actually in hospitals and all kinds of other aspects of healthcare mm-hmm. and our increased knowledge. So we include it in the neurologic music therapy taxonomy because it is such an effective treatment. But I want to make sure that the credit goes to the speech therapist who really 
originally designed the technique. I'll tell you about the six steps. What we wanna do first is create sentences that we know that this person would want to be able to say. And so we can talk to the patient, and obviously if they're having difficulty speaking, the family becomes a really good resource for, mm -hmm. you know, what would you like your loved one to be able to say in their everyday life? What would help make things easier or less frustrating? So from there, we create a list of sentences and we think about what the melody of that sentence would be. So when we speak, it has, we call prosody. So it has this prosody or melodic component to it. Mm -hmm. And so we put the speech to a melodic melody uh, or the sentence to a melodic melody. And we tap the client's hand as we sing the melody or as we hum the melody. So we help them kind of prime and internalize that melody. And as we tap their hand, we're trying to stimulate the, the motor strip which is close to the Broca's area or the, the speech area that we're trying to activate. So as we're tapping the, the client's hand, we'll hum and just help them learn the melody we're going to use. Mm -hmm. And then we would add the words to that melody while they're listening. So at this point in time in the process, the client usually knows that they can sing. And it's quite exciting when you are having difficulty speaking, but you realize that you can sing. So they'll often try to sing anything even before they know what the words to the melody are going to be. Right. So they start, they listen first, and then they start joining in and singing along with you to rehearse the sentence and really internalize it and, and learn it because the idea is eventually for them to reproduce it. Um, so as you're practicing it, as the therapist, I would start to fade out my voice and my cues to see if they've learned it and if they can initiate it on their own independently. From there, there's a little bit of a call and response between the client and the therapist. So I would sing the sentence and then I would ask the client to sing it back to me to see if they're able to independently do that. And then the final step is to really just see if they can use that in a functional context. Mm -hmm. So it's very exciting when the client is able to sing a sentence, but can they say the sentence? And if a real situation happens when they need to use the, use the sentence, can they actually initiate it? So that's probably the most important step of right. the six is that transfer. If I ask you a question, can you initiate that sentence mm -hmm. we've been practicing? We wanted to hear her in action. Here's Kareen with a patient. What have you been doing? 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 What 
So you can say this really to anybody, not just Anka. So your sister comes to pick you up and you get in the car and you could say, What have you been doing? What have you been doing? Good. Between the two of them, Kareen and Michael's work spans the spectrum from clinical to research. Michael shared his journey as a researcher with us. My uh, personal journey is actually a journey as a researcher. Mm-hmm. And so I became interested in clinical applications, and that's still probably 70% of my research is uh, translational. Mm-hmm. There's also about one-third is uh, we're looking at still basic music perception processing in the brain. But the clinical angle sort of started maybe 25 years ago. And because when we tested people with music, we looked at memory function of dementia persons, we looked at walking movement ability of stroke and Parkinson, and we used music to cue them or to help them remember things. Mm-hmm. We saw tremendous effects, and we documented that very carefully for many, many years in the research, in papers that we presented. And then we, the question was not anymore are these data correct because people had replicated that they found the same thing they've developed other angles that were great the question was who can do it and so this is when neurologic music therapy as a uh, sort of certificate clinical branch practice that that people practice was established in around 2000 Hmm. and so this has been around for 20 years my role is to do research. So we don't really do clinical stuff in here in my research center at all. Mm-hmm. And the graduate programs we have, we have a master's in a master's and a PhD in music and health science. We don't teach uh, therapy. We teach uh, research skills, usually mostly clinical research skills and obviously on, on focus on auditory neuroscience and then obviously on music. So my role I think in all of this to help discover and push the research agenda forward so that we have evidence-based ways to help people. Michael explains the basis of his research and gives us a sneak peek at what some of his work examines. Music is a very pervasive stimulus. It's a very complex auditory stimulus. It's probably the most complex auditory language the brain has developed. Mm -hmm. So when we listen to music or do any kind of musical task in the brain, the hallmark of what we see in the images is that there is a very large array of networks that are activated cortically, subcortically, even from a priming aspect, you know, spinal cord, motor neurons can be triggered. So there is not a music area in the brain, rather than music stimulates a large, large network of multiple regions in the brain. And that's, of course, is helpful when we look at injured brains because we are pretty sure that somehow some area that in need of plasticity and work, so to speak, will also be impacted by music. Mm -hmm. So we have auditory areas, we have cognitive prefrontal areas, we have motor areas, parietal areas, pattern perception. The whole brain is really, really very, very active and we do musical tasks. My original hypothesis really came out of musicianship. I was interested in studying why musicians can execute, plan and execute 
an enormous amount of rapid movements very, very fast. If you would take the musical context out of that and just say, okay, move your fingers 3,000 times in the first one minute in some kind of pattern, people would probably look and say, that's certainly a crazy idea, but that's exactly what a pianist does. So that was actually my original hypothesis. Then people were interested in talking to me about uh, music therapy. And I said, well, the way this I see it currently, it may not be very science-based. Let's try a different approach. Let's look at the music itself. So we started looking at the effect of rhythm, musical rhythm, auditory rhythm. Does that change how people entrain and move? And the first experiments that we did were quite dramatic, and the effect is still dramatic. Mm-hmm. So a stroke patient walks with much more symmetry and much more stability. A Parkinson patient can walk much faster and uh, with less freezing. So the auditory system, and that was part of the things that we sort of helped discover, the auditory system is very closely linked to the motor system and to the cognitive system, speech-language system. And so it plays a very central network role in shaping and impact and other other areas. And so this is how we discovered step-by-step these multiple translational effects of music on non-musical functions. We're doing a big study right now with St. Michael's Hospital looking at the neural basis, the brain basis, why people with mild cognitive dysfunction or Alzheimer's disease, why do they remember music so much longer Mm. and autobiographical memories associated with music? So we just completed a brain imaging study that gives us some very good ideas why these music memory networks that were built over 20, 30 years, 40 years sometimes, have much more preservation and resilience built in. And so we can actually probably say that some focused neurologic music therapy interventions stimulating and boosting these kind of memory networks that are embedded in general cognitive networks can give Alzheimer's patients, and we tested that actually neuropsychologically about a year ago, can give them at least a boost, a cognitive boost. I mean, we cannot reverse, obviously, the progression of the disease, but we can hopefully create a slowing down, a ramping down Mm -hmm. of the progression. In addition to the study that was just described in Alzheimer's disease, Michael is overseeing 17 other research projects in NMT now, spanning many other populations and applications. These include a mechanism research study at CAMH, which uses neuroimaging techniques to understand why music helps Parkinson's patients walk better. His team is also working with Holland Blueview Kids Rehab Hospital to look at how brain waves between children and their caregivers synchronize during neurologic music therapy sessions. His team is also exploring a new line of research, using a robotic kinematic system to look at optimal motor performance learning in musicians, and they're hoping to eventually translate this work to movement disorders. Research is obviously always the the engine behind learning more about music and about how it influences the brain so that we can be directly applying that to to real people. And I feel like it's really amazing to be in a setting where I have things coming hot off the press in the research and I can, you know, that same day in a clinical setting with the students be teaching them and showing them how to actually implement it. This complementary nature of research and practice is a theme we've always explored here at Raw Talk, and the field of music therapy is no exception. Sarah Rose chronicles her journey of how her research interests came to be. 
which was informed by what she was observing in her own clinical practice, providing music therapy in the context of medical assistance in dying, or MAID for short. I found several years ago when MAID became legal that patients were actually asking for music as a part of their MAID process. Not that this surprised me, but it intrigued me, and I developed a curiosity around what that experience was like. So for my PhD, I did a phenomenological study on the experience of music therapy within the context of assisted dying, working with and interviewing 10 patients over the course of seven months, also interviewing their primary caregiver, so a family member usually, several months after the patient's death. I also did my own reflections on what it was like to be a music therapist as part of an assisted dying process. And themes such as life reflection, immediacy of therapeutic relationship, trusting therapeutic process, and symptom management and control came up in the research. And it was really exciting but also validating to see this as a trend in the data, so informing hopefully music therapy as a standard of practice within assisted dying in the future. We currently have guidelines written about how music therapists can practice within assisted dying. And now with this new data, we're hoping to update those guidelines and encourage music therapists to make it part of their practice as they feel comfortable. We asked Sarah Rose to tell us a bit more about why the use of qualitative methodology was necessary to address her research questions and exploration of music therapy in the context of medical assistance in dying. I do believe that qualitative and quantitative research are two sides of the same coin and that they really don't exist as binaries. I think there is a huge spectrum on which we as researchers place ourselves. But at the end of the day, my deep curiosity is in patient experience. And that's something that cannot be quantitatively measured. We can try, but we're never going to get quite as close as we would like to, to a patient's experience, even with qualitative methodology. But the nuance the gray area, the complexity of exploring what someone feels, thinks, and sees as they are going through something that's life-changing or life-ending, it's not something I wanted to measure. It's something I wanted to explore. And so phenomenological methodology, hermeneutics, interviews, taping lived experience and reflecting back on it, I felt I was able to sit in the gray area with this methodology and not try and find answers, but just come up with more questions. And that really drove the research forward. I do feel when we try and express our voice or patients' voices or caregivers' voices, there's always going to be layers because human beings are layered. And when it comes to music, we have such complex associations that have such deep layers to them and deep roots that we don't always even have access to. So I think acknowledging that there's complexity just feels authentic for me. Although music therapy is incredibly valuable in people's experiences of health, many misunderstandings about the field remain, including what music therapy is or what music therapists can bring to the table. We certainly held some of our own prior to working on this episode. We asked our guests to share some of those misunderstandings with us. I think one of the most challenging things about this field is that music tends to have a very mystical connotation. I mean, we all know music is powerful, but it's not just the powerful you know, ability of music driving mm -hmm. the change, but it's really having an understanding of what elements of the music or when should music be used in a specific certain situation? 
It's definitely challenging to navigate people's assumptions and expectations of what it means to be a music therapist in a hospital. Folks often think that I am purely entertainment. There is an entertainment element to having live music that is important, but in fact, the most important thing is that psychotherapeutic relationship that I have with patients. So at the end of the day, it does not become performative or entertainment. It's all about the therapeutic relationship and the goals we set out, such as anxiety management, mood management, processing emotions. The music is often not necessarily beautiful, especially if patients want to express something very raw and very real. It's not about music for entertainment's sake. It's about music for self-expression. But trying to convey that in a healthcare facility where people assume that if you have a musical instrument, you're providing entertainment, that can be a little bit tricky. The fact that music therapy is a psychotherapy, and certainly in my work, not all music therapists practice as psychotherapists, but many of us do, and we're part of the College of Psychotherapists of Ontario, that's often a surprise to other healthcare professionals. I find that once professionals refer me to their patients and they see what happens in a music therapy session or they hear about it from patients, they tend to have a broader understanding of the role of music and that it goes beyond performative, entertaining, or purely aesthetic. Sometimes the most challenging part of my job is getting in the door with a patient because just like clinicians have assumptions, patients also have assumptions not only about me but about themselves. Patients are often told they are not musical early in life, and so undoing some of those assumptions that people hold about themselves can, in and of itself, be therapeutic. I may get a referral from a physician, but if the patient isn't quite ready to go there, it's very challenging to get anywhere psychotherapeutically. But it's hugely rewarding when we can develop a trust, and sometimes that can happen even faster through music than words alone. And it's hugely rewarding when patients invite me in and offer a glimpse of their life story through the lens of music. It's rich, it's intriguing, it's beautiful, it's messy, it's all of these things that I feel privileged to witness. And I always tell patients they never have to. They can, of course, not use music because music can be too painful and too sensitive and too intense for patients to access. But knowing I have this as an option feels really rich and really exciting. We were curious to learn how each of our guests became interested and eventually pursued the field. And we found that each guest came from a very different path. Bernice Chu completed an honors bachelor of music therapy at Wilfrid Laurier University and a master's degree in music therapy at Anglia Ruskin University. She is currently a neurologic music therapy fellow at the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability in the United Kingdom. She shared her written story with us from across the pond. I learned about music therapy at the end of high school when my piano teacher handed me a careers in music book. The first career listed was music therapy, and I instantly knew that that was what I wanted to do. Leading up to university, I knew I wanted to do something involving helping others and really could not see letting go of my hobby of making music. It was like a marriage of my greatest interests. I chose music therapy because I've always been a musician and I've always seen how music can have a very powerful effect on people. Mm. I wanted to understand how I could actually use that to have an influence on people's lives and because it was something that was so important to me in my life. Um, As I started studying it, though, I realized there was so much more to it than I knew. Yeah. 
there's so much we know about what happens in the brain when the brain interacts with music and how it can really change people's lives, particularly in different setting, neurologic settings. I, uh, I studied in Germany and then I was, uh, was a professional musician in Germany in my 20s for about five or six years, made LPs. And then, um, what was your instrument? A violin. Violin. And then I had a bit of a burnout of a very intense performance schedule. I also had wanted to just sort of take a time out and had learned about this interdisciplinary PhD and master's program at Michigan State that sort of combined music psychology, music therapy, music mm -hmm. theory. I think I heard it like many things. The best things we hear is more like by accident. I think I heard yeah. it from a friend of my my father, <laughs> who was an American, and we had discussions about what I do. And he said, well, maybe in the U.S. actually you have those programs. Those that did not exist in Europe at that time at all. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very surprised. And then I thought I'd check it out for a year or two. And then they offered me a, a research assistantship mm -hmm. for my PhD, so that would pay for that. And so I guess I did now. leave, <laughs> and then now I have moved to Canada, which I think is fantastic. Sometimes I say, now I'm halfway home. <laughs> so it's a life here for me as a born European is a very easy adjustment. It's a very, very exciting country. I started out as a music educator. I was a music education major at the University of Toronto in my undergraduate degree. I played the piano and I taught for many years, but I found I was increasingly interested in my students' mental health more than I was in their technical abilities on the piano and felt that music was creating a platform for them to explore their emotions. And it really got me interested in the field of music therapy. From that point, I went on to study music therapy at Wilfrid Laurier got my master's degree and accreditation, and then began as an intern here at Princess Margaret in 2012. If you're inspired or interested in pursuing music therapy as a career, you might be wondering what education is required to become a music therapist. Bernice explained that in Canada, accredited music therapists must complete a bachelor or a graduate certificate in music therapy and 1,000 hours of a supervised clinical internship. University coursework includes clinical placements in a variety of settings and academic studies in music therapy research, music, and psychology. After completing an internship, graduates are eligible to take the Certification Board for Music Therapy exam. And after passing, can apply for the MTA certification. We'll have the website linked in our episode show notes. After qualification, music therapists must take part in continuing education and development as therapists and maintain their credentials every five years through the CAMT continuing education process. What advice did our other guests have to share for prospective music therapists? If this is an area that you're interested in, you would need to have a degree in an area that's that's connected. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of applied health professionals physical therapists, speech therapists, occupational therapists that also do our trainings and are able to use the information within their scope of practice. Right. So you don't have to be a music therapist necessarily. We also here at the University of Toronto have a music and health, um, applied music and health program where you can learn to become a neurologic music therapist. Incredible. Yeah. And, and then we also have our master's of music and health science, where you can really learn to understand more about 
what's going on in the brain and yeah yeah, underpinnings of of why this works so there are lots of opportunities everyone who practices as a neurologic music therapist goes through the official training through the academy of neurologic music therapy so students professionals um, all the training happens at the academy and then there are several levels of advanced training as well that you can do Check out our show notes for links to upcoming workshops that are being offered through the University of Toronto. For anyone who's wondering what it is or whether it's for them, I was unsure for a really long time. And it felt like a huge leap to go back to school and study music therapy. What was hugely helpful was talking to a music therapist. I reached out to a few of the music therapists in Toronto who are now my mentors and just said, can I talk to you? Can I ask you questions? What do you do? Who do you work with? What does it feel like? And that really gave me the inspiration and motivation to go for it. And also to know that the sky's the limit with music as it is with music therapy. If you dream it, you can do it. If you want to work in a certain type of facility, amazing. If you want to do something totally unique and creative, you can. I have a really good friend who worked in the community in Vancouver's downtown east side. And I have a really good friend who has worked in indigenous health. And really, wherever you can dream music therapy should go, I say go for it. And I would say um, nurture your relationship with music is a huge aspect because If you're going to use yourself as a tool in a clinical situation and a therapeutic relationship, you've got to really value your own relationship with music and to really trust yourself. So make music, you know, improvise, keep on doing that. And then maybe also, if you've never had therapy yourself, I would encourage you to go try a therapy or maybe even try a session with a music therapist. I would say both of those things. So nurturing your relationship with music and to go and try a a therapy session. As a relatively new music therapist, we asked Priya to also share with us what her experience has been like since beginning to work in the field. When I finished my master's, it definitely wasn't realistic to expect to jump into like a full-time role as a music therapist but I also knew like talking to other peers and other music therapists in the field that there are many contracts available so that's kind of what my life has become (laughs) a lot of contracts mixed together to create this full-time kind of work and so far I'm really enjoying that because I love the diversity of my work and all the different people I get to talk to and meet and work with and it really continues to challenge me as well to think of different ways to use music therapeutically and I'm still learning every day about the potential of music um, therapy and I learn through my clients so they teach me so much and so that gives me a lot of encouragement and drive to continue learning new ways again to use music I also learning from my clients I mean even just songs. I think that I know so many songs but and so many artists, but I find out every day that there's another artist or another song that I never heard before. And so I'm constantly expanding my repertoire because of that, and it's that's beautiful. But I also think that a lot of people already use music therapeutically and maybe don't realize. So my approach is very strengths-based and resource-oriented and music-centered. So I'm looking at how to enhance people's strengths that they already have and then to use music as a resource in as many ways as possible in their lives and to see, you know, every day what can music teach us about ourselves. So where is the field of music therapy headed? Well, to start, Bernice explains that music therapy is currently regulated in three provinces in Canada. 
Alberta, Ontario, and New Brunswick. The other provinces are now working towards regulation, aiming for change in the next few years. We asked our guests what other future directions they are hoping to see. I think that a lot of um, health institutions and even smaller settings and support centers are starting to realize like the value of music and music therapy as a very important part of treatment. So yeah, I do think that's changing. And I think the more that music therapists advocate for music therapy and raise awareness about it, and also the research in the field, which there's being more and more of, I think that will start to change in the bigger picture. And I think more healthcare settings will start to look for and want to implement music therapy as part of their treatment. I would love to see more music therapists working in institutions and making it more of a standard of care. I keep thinking standard of health care. That's the phrase that keeps running through my head, that it's not surprising to see a music therapist in a hospital, that clinicians aren't searching for music resources if a patient does request something musical, that there is a music therapist on staff, and that training programs are more readily available. I do believe that's the direction we're going in. There's dozens of facilities and institutions in Toronto alone where music therapists are working and it's only growing. So I'm hopeful that it becomes a standard of healthcare and that it's part of a standard assessment. I know here at Princess Margaret we're very lucky, especially with social work, that a lot of social workers make it part of their assessment when they first meet patients. Do you want to meet the music therapist is one of their questions, which is exciting. I hope to see more of that. I think that's an excellent place to wrap up today's content. We have one more surprise for you at the end where we'll leave you with Sarah Rose singing a beautiful and moving piece that she helped a mother write near the end of life as a love letter to her two young children. But just briefly before, we want to thank our team who put this episode together. Jillian, Steph, Swapna, and myself, Aaron, were the hosts and content developers. CJ was our photographer, Kat was our audio engineer, and Melissa was our executive producer. We want to sincerely thank all of our guests and their clients for sharing their insightful thoughts, voices, and creative work with us. Thank you, Bernice, Michael, Corrine, Priya, and Sarah Rose for opening our ears and minds to the value and importance of music therapy in people's journeys of health and well-being. As Sarah Rose eloquently put it, I would say human beings are musical, and everyone who's listening to this is musical. You start from that at baseline, from the moment you're Actually, before the moment you're born, as soon as you have a heartbeat, your body is music. And for that reason, music can and should be and is becoming an integral part of what it means to be human and what it means to be healthy and what it means to live and cope with different aspects of health and well-being. Always remember to stay in the moment Live with integrity and always be kind There's a need to stay present I know that I love you, take care of each other And know that I'll be with you forever I want you to know the beauty I see How loving, how wonderful and funny you are Remember the good times and the beautiful moments The crazy and the fun times Adventures we've shared And always remember to stay in the moment
commandments Live with integrity and always be kind There's a need to stay present And know that I love you Take care of each other And know that I'll be with you forever Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.